Matthew chapter 6. Today, we are going to finish up the Lord's Prayer. We've been going through it very purposely, purposefully, slowly, because it's so rich. And prayer should be such an important part of the Christian's life that we're, we're looking in detail at prayer that pleases God. Follow with me as I read, beginning in verse 9. Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus said, Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we need you today as we need you every day. Every hour we need you. God, would you speak to us through this, your breathed out word. Help us to understand. Help us to do what you say in a way that pleases you so that in our lives you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if by any chance you would want to know what makes me tick, if you want to know for some reason how my brain is wired in a lot of ways. Not that, okay, this is totally hypothetical because who would want to know that? But if for some reason you want to know sort of the way I tend to think about things, you would have to know one thing about me at least, and that's in part, I was raised on Abbott and Costello. In part, my parents did some things too. But, but this is a huge part of my childhood. Abbott and Costello were. If you, okay, a lot of you youngins have no idea who Abbott and Costello are. The greatest comedy duo of all time, active from the 1930s through the 1950s. Who's on first? It's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, their routine. Anyways, a large, a highlight of my childhood was we didn't grow up, we grew up in kind of in, in the boondocks a little bit. We didn't have cable television. We had like three channels and PBS. But every Friday night, for many years of my, my youth, they would play on PBS, the local PBS station, a different Abbott and Costello movie. They made like 36 of them. And so that was a highlight. Every week we'd look forward to this Abbott and Costello night. And um, one of the most well-known, most famous Abbott and Costello movies, and some of you have probably seen it, maybe, perhaps, is called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Anybody seen that? Anyways, well, they not only meet Frankenstein in this movie, they also meet Dracula and the Wolfman and even a little bit of the Invisible Man, but they don't. Anyways. But there's a particular scene I want to mention to you in this movie where Costello goes into his friend's hotel room looking for him for whatever reason, and he doesn't actually know that his friend is actually a werewolf. All right? Lon Chaney Jr., turns into a wolf when the, when the full moon is out. And it happens to be, of course, this night. There's a full moon. And also unbeknownst to Costello is that 
He currently has become a werewolf and is currently in that room, lurking, hiding, ready to pounce on Costello. So he comes in and sees that his friend's not there, so he starts writing a note, kind of explaining where he's been or whatever, not paying any attention. And the, the wolf man comes up behind him and springs at him, but just as he does, Costello, of course, happens to turn the other way, and the wolfman goes tumbling past him. Costello doesn't hear anything, doesn't see anything, so he turns around and does something else, stoops down to pick something up, and the wolfman flies over him and tumbles over the couch. And this goes on and on several times. Costello leaves the room never knowing that there was a werewolf about ready or trying to pounce on him the whole time. Point being <laughs> that it is easy for us to be totally oblivious to the dangers that we're in. Now, of course, this was meant to be a humorous thing. And well, it's really funny, by the way, you should watch it. But our situation is actually a lot more serious, isn't it? It might be more akin to, I don't know if any of you have seen any of those aerial photos of a, a photograph taken from an airplane or a helicopter of a beach where people are just out on the beach, a normal sunny day, having fun, families there, people sunbathing, kids and families playing in the water. But then the photo also reveals that just about 50 feet further out into the ocean, there's three, four, five, six, seven sharks just roving about, and the people have no idea. They have no awareness of the danger that they're actually in. Well, this is where Christians often fall, right? We may acknowledge that there's sharks in the water and that there's potential danger out there, but we don't take it seriously enough to let it actually affect the way we live. We swim, we splash, we play, never knowing, not thinking about the fact that danger is so near to us. Jesus doesn't want us to be that way. He doesn't want us to be complacent or ignorant. He doesn't want us to be unaware kinds of people. He wants us to be aware people, people who are aware of the danger that's so close to us, the danger that surrounds us, danger that we cannot protect ourselves from. Jesus wants us to see our need for God's protection. He wants us to ask for God's protection. And that's, of course, how he ends this famous model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. This amazing prayer that's so short, it's so concise, yet it tells us so much about who God is and who we are in relation to him. And let's face it, it corrects a lot of our natural tendencies in prayer because naturally we have some inclination within ourselves to turn prayer in on ourselves, to, to be self-focused in our prayer, to be very me-centered. Jesus wants to correct that in us. He wants us to make our prayers completely God-centered. This is the kind of prayer that pleases God. Now it's right to pray about our needs and to pray for the needs of others, to pray for those we care about, to pray for the lost, to pray even for our, our enemies. But there's a way to do that that's very man-centered, and there's a way to do that that's very God-centered, and that's what Jesus is trying to show us. He's shown us that we, we can both praise God, express praise to God for who he is, and express our needs in a way that's all about him. It's all God-centered. And we saw last week that this kind of God-pleasing prayer, it seeks the greatest things, that God's name would be hallowed, it would be, be treated as holy, glorified throughout all the earth. But it also seeks that God's will, God's rule would fill 
the whole earth. That seeks greatest things, but it also recognizes our dependence on God for our greatest needs. We absolutely need God's provision. Daily sustenance, our daily bread, comes from God. We absolutely need God's pardon, the forgiveness of our sins that can only come from God. And now here, as we see in this sixth and last petition, Jesus shows us that we absolutely need God's protection. Protection from the temptations and the evil that will come to us. And so prayer that pleases God seeks the greatest things, recognizes our greatest needs, and realizes that those needs can only be met by God. And so the only way we can pray this particular petition then, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, the only way we can do that sincerely and effectively is if we know at least three things. We need to know, first of all, our weakness. We must know our weakness. Second, we must know our enemy. And third, we must know our God. So first, we must know our weakness. This is something I think we have to admit. Uh, it's not something we like to do. Weakness is not something that our culture or our nature, for that matter, uh, like to readily admit to. Strength and confidence is valued in our society, isn't it? I mean, we, we sometimes couch it in terms like accentuate your positive qualities. You know, um, play down the negative. Man up. In the physical arena, this is true. We, we have bodybuilding contests, right? I've yet to see a body deflating contest. <laughs> but if you hear of one, I'm, I'm sure I'm a shoeing on that. So, um, but no, it's true. We we value strength in the physical material world. We value confidence, self confidence, assertiveness, independence, high self esteem. These things are applauded. They're taught. And it's just as true in the spiritual arena. Oftentimes, we try to promote ourselves as strong Christians, as confident Christians, as 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 firm. Christians, but the fact of the matter is, we're all weak. Weakness is a reality for every single one of us. Spiritual, moral weakness is endemic to every man, woman, and child, every descendant of Adam. Few of us are as strong as we think we are, and most of us are weaker than we know. And it's because Jesus knows our weakness, though, That's the reason he teaches us to pray for God's protection. It's one of our greatest needs. That's what he's saying here. We are weak. You need God's protection. Do not lead us into temptation, we're taught to pray, but deliver us from evil. That's a prayer that every child of God needs to be praying every single day because every single day we're going to face temptations, the temptation to do evil. But we need to talk a little bit more about this temptation. What is Jesus really talking about here? Because... If you look at it, 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 it seems, at first glance, to kind of be an odd petition, doesn't it? I don't know if you've ever thought that. But do not lead us into temptation. Does God really lead us into temptation? And if he does so, doesn't that mean that God himself is the one tempting us? Listen to what James has to say about that. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why not? 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, according to this very clear verse, we have to say that God does not, cannot, and will not ever tempt anyone. It goes against his very nature. God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone else. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So then what does Jesus mean here? Are we asking God to not do something that he's already promised that he would never do? I think a, a, a solution to this problem lies in the fact that it just lies in this word temptation. And the original language, this word for temptation, is the exact same word that we often translate as testing. The difference is in the context in which it's being used. Is it talking about enticement to evil? Or is it talking about testing for a different reason? Because God, it's pretty clear in Scripture, tests his people. Did you know that? Let me give you some examples. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. You remember this test? God told Abraham to sacrifice his own beloved son, Isaac, the son of promise. God told him to lay him down on the altar and offer him up as a burnt offering on the mountain. Now that's a test. What about Job? Job, who, who had all kinds of horrible trials that we can scarcely even imagine. And Job's wealth was taken away. Job's body was plagued. Job's children were killed. You say, well, Satan did those things, yes, but all under God's permission, wasn't it? God's sovereign permission. What about Israel? We're told that God tested his people in the wilderness. Exodus 16, verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? That I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So why did God do this? Why does, did he test his people? Why does God test his people? Why does he put us through trials, through tribulation, through emotional anguish even at times? Is it to entice us to sin? Was this to entice these people that we just read about to sin? The way we define temptation? Of course not. God never ever entices anyone to sin. This is what James was talking about. God hates sin. He cannot do otherwise. God tested those people and he tests us today in order to grow us. In order to glorify his own name in our lives. He doesn't test us in order that we would prove ourselves strong or prove ourselves worthy. He tests us that we prove him strong. That we would prove him worthy and good, and right, and sufficient. God tests us to bring glory to his name and to build us up. Think about it. Was Abraham's faith stronger after his trial? You bet it was. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that, that when God asked him to do this, Abraham supposed that God was able even to raise the dead. Wow. That's faith. What about Job? Do you think he came to a better understanding and knowledge of who God was after the trials that he went through? You bet he did. 
And in each case, God was glorified and renewed obedience and, and praise. God tests us to glorify himself and to grow us. James puts it this way. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see it there? It's as plain as day. God tests in order to grow his people. So don't despise trials. Don't despise God's testing. It's how he grows us. It's how he produces in us endurance and patience and love and obedience. This is how he makes us more like his son, Jesus. But there is another side of the coin, so to speak. Because with every test, with every trial, there does come temptation. When Job was going through his terrible trials, we see temptation, for example, coming through, through his wife. Why don't you just curse God and die? You think Job wasn't tempted to do that? You think you wouldn't be tempted to do that? You think Abraham wasn't tempted when God said, I want you to offer up your own son, the one I promised you, that would be your heir, and, 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 and all the nations would be blessed through this, this line? You, you think he wasn't tempted to, to disbelieve God? To, to ignore God? To decide God was evil and be done with him? Sure, he was tempted in those ways. And we know it to be true in our own lives, don't we? Whenever we go through a trial a difficult situation, there's always the temptation not to trust God in that. There's a temptation to go the other way. We can either trust God and grow in faith, or we cannot trust God and sin and be humbled, I mean be hardened by our disobedience, be hardened by unbelief. I think these two aspects of testing come out vividly in, in Jesus' own experience in the wilderness. I want you to see something. Turn back to Matthew chapter 4 and look at just verse 1. It's a very interesting verse. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did you see that? Jesus was, happened to be walk, taking a walk in the wilderness and all of a sudden got tempted? No. The Spirit of God, God himself, led, brought, took Jesus in the wilderness with the express purpose to be tempted. He was being tested by God, but being tempted, enticed to do evil by the devil. You see the difference? Thank you. So we go back to then our petition in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. When we pray, do not lead us into temptation, we're recognizing first that we are weak and we cannot withstand all the temptations that come at us from the world and the flesh and the devil. We can't stand on our own. We have to recognize that, realize that. We have to realize that daily we are walking through what, what John Bunyan calls vanity fair all around us. We can't get away from the temptations. They're sometimes literally coming out of the walls at us. Our economy is in part fueled by temptations. 
by appealing to our natural lusts and desires that often go against the will of God. And our flesh is always eager to go after those things that promise some kind of temporary pleasure or excitement or satisfaction or reprieve. And Satan, he's always willing and ready to pounce, to take that opportunity. So if you think that you're spiritually capable, spiritually strong enough to withstand these temptations on your own, you're in a very dangerous place. I'm in a very dangerous place if I'm thinking that way. Remember Peter? Even though all might fall away because of you, Jesus, I'll never fall away. These other guys, yeah, I could see that. But me? No, Jesus, I'll stand with you to the end. Within a couple of hours, a few hours, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And as Brent read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. All of us are weak. Not one of us is strong in ourselves. We all know people who this has happened to. Or we've heard stories. We know, we've seen people who are strong in the faith, people who are much stronger in the faith than we are. And yet temptation and opportunity come together. And they fall. And the fall is so destructive. Thank God that that is not always the end of the story. That God is a God of forgiveness and God restores. But yet the destruction is often terrible. We can't depend on ourselves to protect us from these temptations. We can't do it. We're weak. We'll fall. We're going to fail. We have to have God's protection. Question is, do we hate sin enough to do that, to pray that way? Do we love God enough to pray that way? So we have to know our weaknesses. But in order to pray this way sincerely and effectively, we also have to know our enemy. Yeah, we, we do need to pray for protection against the temptations that come from our own flesh and from the world, but Jesus actually seems to be talking about something, or rather someone, more specific here. And, and some of your translations bring that out, which really seems to be um, uh, what he's getting at here when it says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That really seems to be what Jesus is getting at. The evil one, of course, is Satan, the devil. The same evil one that tempted Jesus in the wilderness is the same evil one who either directly tempts us himself or, or more often has his minions doing that kind of work, the demons. Of course, today we'll be laughed out of the room if we say that we believe in a real, personal devil. I mean, he's been so caricatured in popular culture as the the goatee-sporting, red cape-wearing, you know, pitchfork-wielding, smooth-talker with horns that no reasonable person could seriously believe in this guy. But the Bible asserts that he's real, that he's personal. He's the adversary, the slanderer, the father of lies, the deceiver, the serpent of old, the dragon. And on two occasions, he's called the tempter. 
So what do we need to know about this evil one, Satan? We need to know, first of all, his strength and his subtlety. See, the devil is not some comical buffoon that, that we can outwit or outmaneuver or outfiddle. That's not who he is. That's who our culture has made him out to be. Satan is much stronger than any of us. He's much smarter than any of us. Yes, he's not God. He's not on an equal footing with God. He is a mere creature that tries to ape God. But he is much stronger and much smarter and much more cunning than any of us are. I mean, he's been at this a long time. He knows what he's doing. He knows how weak we are. He knows in what ways we're weak. He knows what to do to what kinds of people at what times to entice them to evil. He's really good at doing that. He studies us. He sets up the world system to cater to our fleshly desires. He's powerful. He's smart. But he's also very subtle at what he does. Satan doesn't stand there with a big sign that says, evil this way, come do it. That's not normally the way he operates with Christians. He usually moves in more subtle ways. He gets us to be able to rationalize sin in our minds so that we start to think, well, this is not really that bad of a sin. Or, this is not really sin at all if you think about it this way. Or, or maybe even to the point of, you know, this is actually something God would approve of. This isn't sin. This is something God would want of me. For example, you, you might not be feeling loved by your spouse. You know, she, she doesn't respect me. She ignores me, belittles me. He, he doesn't pay attention like I need. He, he doesn't express the kind of love that I need to me. And Satan sees that kind of attitude and that kind of vulnerability and, and he jumps in. That's an opportunity for him to jump in and widen that crack and start to put those subtle things in our path so that we start to rationalize and say, well, God wants me to be loved. I, I deserve this kind of attention. My, my, my husband, my wife isn't giving it to me. Why shouldn't I accept the loving attention of my coworker? You see how subtle Satan can be to get us to rationalize, to justify sin in our own minds. So we need to know his strength and his subtlety. We also need to know his tactics. We need to know how he preys on our weaknesses. Paul calls these the schemes of the devil, and he wants us to be aware of them. We're told that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's always looking for that crack to jump in and to widen. He's always looking to deceive us about the nature of sin, about its consequences. He's always looking to take our eyes off of Christ and put them on ourselves or put them on anyone or anything else other than Christ. That's his goal. He's happy as long as he's doing that. He's got various ways of doing this. He might do it through hardship or pain, the way he tried to tempt Job through physical suffering and loss. He might do it through persecution. 
the way he did it to the early church, the way he's doing it to, to people around the world even now, trying to forcefully destroy their faith. We're told about this also in Revelation 2, verse 10. He might try to appeal to our natural, fleshly desires that go against the will of God. The way he tried to, to get at Jesus, for example, in part in his temptation in the wilderness. Satan might pounce on our selfishness and on our anger. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because that gives the devil an opportunity. Satan pounces when he sees that vulnerability, when he sees that kind of attitude. Don't give him that opportunity, we're told. But often Satan also tries to distort the truth about God, about the person of Christ. This comes through various modes of false teaching that sound, again, subtle, that sound right and sound biblical at first. But when we don't know our Bibles well enough, it can take us away from who God truly is, about who Jesus or the Holy Spirit truly are, about the authority of the Bible, about salvation by grace through faith. Satan is subtle and he tries to lure us bit by bit away from the truth or lure us bit by bit into any sin. We have to know his schemes. We have to know that he's powerful and that he's strong and that he's cunning. We have to understand we don't stand a chance against Satan on our own. And that's why finally, to pray this prayer, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, to pray that confidently, to pray that effectively, we have to know our God. What do we have to know about God? We have to know God's power. 1 John 4, verse 4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's be clear. There's no room for some kind of cosmic dualism here. Right? There's no cosmic battle be- between two equal forces, forces of good versus evil, you know, God versus Satan in that respect. No. Satan, as we already said, is a mere creature. He is a created being and he can do nothing apart from God permitting him. Remember in the Gospels all those times where Jesus would approach a demon-possessed person? And what was often the reaction of that demon and that person? They cowered when they saw Jesus. They recognized him to be the holy son of God. And they trembled. They begged Jesus for mercy, not to torment them, not to destroy them. Not now. Satan and all the demons fear God because they know with a word they're finished. James 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe. And they shudder. The demons, Satan, shudders at God. Here's the point. If God is for us, who can be against us? Can any person, worldly power, or Satan himself be against us if God is for us? No. No way. So we have to know God's power. What else do we have to know about God? We have to know his faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. The faithful God 
who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. This is God's promise to his children. Trials come, tests come, and with them come temptations. But God is faithful. He knows my weakness. He knows your weakness. He knows all of our temptations. Thank God that in each and every case, he is faithful, he says, to provide the way of escape. Sometimes he might take that temptation away. Sometimes he might take us away from the temptation. But more often than not, he is there to provide the endurance to keep us, and to keep us faithful even in the midst of temptation. He promises to do that. And so when we do fall, we can never blame God that he put us in a situation we could not handle, that we could not bear, that we could not resist. When we do fall, it's because we choose to give in. We choose sin over God in that moment. We don't watch and pray. We disregard God's commands. We shirk the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we fall. God provides a way of escape. He promises to do that. And thank God that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. It's about his character. It's about his strength. Though it often feels like we can't bear the temptation, God promises that whatever you're facing right now, whatever you face this afternoon or in the future, He's faithful. He'll provide the way of escape. Will you trust him in that? Will you go to him and allow him to give you the endurance to face that trial, to face the temptation, and to remain faithful to him? So we have to know that God is powerful. We have to know his power. We have to know that he's faithful. We also have to know God's word. How did Jesus combat Satan when he was tempting him in the wilderness? He did it with the word of God. The Bible prepares us for Satan's schemes so that we're not surprised by them. The Bible teaches us about our weaknesses so that we can go to God for protection. The Bible reminds us of God's promises and God's faithfulness and God's power. We have to know our Bibles. For this is how we can resist Satan. This is how we can remain faithful in temptation. Because the Bible ultimately shows us that we have the victory already in Jesus Christ. That's the last thing we need to know about God. To pray this prayer effectively and sincerely. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And we have to know God's victory in Christ. 1 John 3, verse 8. Jesus, the Son of God, came in order to destroy the works of the devil. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus willingly went. He allowed himself to become extremely weak in body, fasting for 40 days, and then subjected to the full onslaught of Satan's temptations. 
Jesus came as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. To remain faithful to God in the midst of temptation. Jesus came as the true Israel to succeed where they failed and fell in the wilderness because of temptation. Jesus trusted his Father, withstood all the temptations, and gained the victory over Satan. But even that, even that victory there in the wilderness was really something just of a foreshadowing of the greatest testing that our Savior would undergo. The greatest temptation to resist God's will on the night he was betrayed. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And he prayed to his father in anguish. Father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath against sin pass from me. But in the end, he said, but not my will, but your will be done. And the father's will was that his son would drink that cup of wrath to the full. Jesus gave himself over to the Father's will, trusting in his Father even as the nails pierced his flesh, even as he breathed his last breath, so that dying he gained the victory over sin, over Satan, over death itself. So trials... Testing and temptations all come in this life. We can't, we can't stop that. But we are told we can pray and we have to pray that God would protect us from falling into temptation such that we would fall. We should fear future sins. We should love God that much. We need to pray that God would help us to recognize our weakness. That God would help us to recognize the strength of our enemy, the evil one. But we need to pray ultimately that God would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to pray that we would consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we wouldn't grow weary or lose heart. I think uh, Martin Luther pretty much preached this sermon in a song. that I want you to listen to the words for a mighty fortress. Most of us know this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. 
his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You know, and, and though these words at the end of the Lord's Prayer don't seem to actually be in the original text, they do form an appropriate conclusion. For to God belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are great. You are sovereign. You are Lord. You are sovereign in our trials and our testing. Even sovereign over our temptations, Lord, that come from the world, that come from the flesh, that come from the devil. We ask, O God, that you protect us. That you keep us, O God, from falling into those sins that will dishonor your name. O God, we want to glorify you in our lives. May you make that a greater desire in each one of us. May you protect us, O oh God, from the power of Satan. May you protect us from all the temptations that come our way. And when we do fall, O oh God, would you be quick to bring us to repentance out of your kindness that we would turn back to you to give you glory, to give you praise, to give you our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.